Hey, this is Drew Dudley, and I just finished off my time on the World of Speakers podcast with Ryan. It was an amazing time. I dove into some of the things to think about as you get on stage, specifically what it is that makes a good story and how to make sure that you're telling stories that connect with the audience. Stay tuned. Make sure you check it out because I learned an awful lot just by getting the opportunity to think about some of these things. It was great to share them. Can't hope you enjoy them. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ahoy, everyone. We are back with another World of Speakers episode. And today, I am pumped. Well, I'm always pumped, right? You know that. But I'm super pumped because we've got Drew Dudley. This guy is an international best-selling author of the book called This Is Day One a practical guide to leadership that matters. Now, there's a lot of books out there that don't matter. This one, we're going to learn why it matters. We're going to meet Drew. We're going to get his tips and tricks, and then we're going to learn about how he's leveraged his stage time to get more stage time and all that kind of stuff. Drew, welcome to the show. Uh, It is my pleasure to be here, my friend. Excellent. So it's kind of funny how we met because I had a friend who mentioned your TEDx talk. Is it a TEDx or is it a TED talk? Uh, it was a TEDx talk that ended up on TED. Yeah, that's just, that's good. So it was a TEDx, then the X dropped and it became highlighted by the TED talk. And I became, so I think number 3,550,001 or something like that. Uh, <laughs> and it's a quick, fun little six minute talk. We were talking about leadership on my radio show that I have, and I just jumped on it. And then I found you on Twitter and I cyber stalked you. And then I asked you to come on the show and here we are. So I'm excited to get to know you and share your valuable insights of leadership one lollipop at a time. Oh, that is (laughs) awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. So one of the ways I like to get to know people is through their past. And I think storytelling is our greatest asset. So I'm going to throw you under the bus, the love bus. This is not a big deal here. But tell me a story from your past. If all that I had was that story to describe you to a friend who had no idea who you were, what, what would that story be? All right. I guess it would be that back when I was running the leadership program at the University of Toronto, I was going through a lousy time towards the, the end of my career there. Specifically, I was going through a toxic time in my workplace and I was going through a depressive episode uh, of part of my bipolar disorder, which is part of my life. And I decided I wanted to take a train trip across Canada and not talk to anybody. Just put myself somewhere in a sleeper car, in the lounge car, read that big stack of books and articles that you're supposed to have read, but you never got around to, (laughs) and not communicate with other human beings. Because my big problem at that particular point in my life was other human beings. They were pissing me off something fierce. And so (laughs) that was the plan. And I got on that train and I talk about this in the book, but early on in my time there, a seven-year-old girl really called me out and made me aware of the gap between that had formed between the man that I envisioned myself as and how I was actually behaving. And what happened was I became aware that I was supposed to be this guy who for as a career was collecting and sharing insights and stories. And here I had gotten on this train all the way across Canada and my plan was to add nothing to my story, learn nothing about other people's. And this train trip went from being an escape from a really dark time in my life and trying to stay away from people to a constant conversation about life and about leadership with different people on the train from that seven-year-old to the bartender in the bar car to a couple of retired CEOs to two guys who stormed the beach at Normandy. And I actually eventually took all of these stories. They're a big part of the book that just came out. So I guess if you really wanted to explain me to somebody else, there's the background. I I came from a, a university background running a leadership program. I am someone who has mental illness as a part of their life, and that drove me into a situation that I learned something from a whole bunch of people who are not the type of leaders or not that don't fit the mold of the type of leaders that we're taught about. And I learned a ton about it. And I went and I, I turn around and I share that all around the world, these wonderful insights into how to live life, how to empower people, how to take care of yourself. And it all came about kind of by accident. And it came about because someone else made me realize 
that I needed to close the gap between the guy I, I wanted to be and how I was actually behaving. And that to me is entirely what my career is about. And it was pointed out to me that I wasn't living it. And so I started to try to figure out how to help other people do just that. Nothing like a seven-year-old calling you out on your stuff to make it real, right? <laughs> oh, without a doubt. And uh, hey, kids, I think the whole world would be better if every politician had to face a press corps <laughs> full of five to seven-year-olds because not only do they ask amazing questions, you cannot BS these kids. They will keep asking follow-ups until they get a, an actual answer. And they, if anyone's ever raised a five-year-old, they know that they could catch inconsistencies in your in your stories. So that I think if you want a, a free leadership tip, spend time with five-year-olds. They'll blow your mind. I like it. There's one of them. I'm sure many tips here. So my question on this train, were you the one that was doing more talking or more listening? Because I know the idea was not to get engaged in conversation, hiding behind the book, which is totally cool. Everybody needs that space. But in these conversations, did you find that the people sort of approached and talked with you and you listened more? Or was your inherent gregarianness coming out of you, whether you liked it or not? Really, it was I approached them for the most part. A couple of them mentioned something to me because they'd overheard the conversations I had with other people. But one of the things I talk to people about leadership is that what sets leaders apart is the questions that they ask. And I think part of the thing that causes people's identities to not connect with leadership in their own minds is that they don't think they have all the answers. And leadership isn't about having answers. It's about the type of questions you ask. And, and the great questions are the ones where the person being asked learns more than the person doing the asking. And that is somewhat counterintuitive in that if you ask a question, it's you that's seeking knowledge, right? But if you're a leader or if you really want to empower other people, work on crafting these questions that the person you're asking learned something. And for me, uh, part of that came about because of one of these interactions where someone said to me, I'd always known this fact, but I wish I told my kids. And that gave birth to the edge of the bed question, which is if you had a child and they were about to leave home for the last night they were spending as someone who lived in your house, they were going off to college or a job or something of that effect. And they called you into their room and, and sat down, you sat down on the edge of their bed and they said, what do I need to know? Like what insights have most contributed to your happiness? What would you tell them? And that question was born out of a conversation I had on that train. And I started using that as my icebreaker and trying to pull from people the wisdom that they, they know, but maybe had never actually realized they had inside them. So that's really how it started. And then I just sat back and listened and tried to ask follow-ups, trying to think of what kind of questions if I was asked would intrigue me in answering. Because questions that are boring to answer don't teach anybody anything. So that, I think, is, is what happened is I took these questions where I thought, not only am I going to hopefully pull some cool advice out of them, but maybe they'll challenge the people that I was asking and then you just let people's wisdom roll. And what I love about this concept is that you're sort of group thinking content. You know, the ability for you to talk with a seven-year-old and somebody who stormed Normandy and asking particular questions that bring about high value answers with what you said, this knowledge, you brought it out in front of them in this conversation. And now these are relatable situations that you can use and you're using in your book and it's redefining leadership and it's, it's convincing people through the act of questioning, essentially what your whole message is, is that leadership needs to be redefined. Because if you're on the side of a bed answering these questions that are going to change someone's life when they leave, that's essentially leadership, right? So it's interesting how that all ties in together from the train ride. Yeah, and it's 100% leadership. Anything that you do that sends people away better off, whether it's a two-hour conversation, a five-year working or romantic relationship or, you know, 15 seconds just passing on the street or a smile, whatever the case may be, that is leadership. Now, it's not the only form of leadership. And I'm not saying that everyone on earth can be a CEO or a senior manager. I am saying there is a form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire. And it's a form of leadership that takes place in daily behaviors that should be celebrated more. Because if we celebrate it more, people are going to feel better when they do it. 
And that means those behaviors are going to be repeated. So if we evaluate leadership on a daily basis, people don't get wrapped up in what their education is or what their title is or how much money they make. They can simply focus on how they behave today. And in the case of this particular train ride or a lot of the things in the book is that people in a, in a specific moment got to draw on their experiences and share with me. And then I get to share with other people. That's leadership if it makes your life a little bit better. And yeah, those powerful questions that make people think about what it is that they already know are great. One of the people asked me, you know, you work with students. What's one thing you want every student who's a part of your workshops, your classes to, to take with them? I had never considered that. And Hmm. it's because I think that we become unconscious to the things that surround us the most, particularly our own life and environments. Marshall McLuhan said, we don't know who first discovered water, but we're pretty sure it wasn't a fish. And if you can give (laughs) people the chance to reflect on what they already know, instead of sort of trying to challenge them with new questions, I think that, that people really respond to that positively, especially when they get the chance to tell their story. Yeah, or instead of just telling them what you think about the situation, you're asking what is relevant for them and their life experience to tap into that, which essentially shines the light on what it what the water is that they're that they've been swimming in that is a new pool or a new temperature for you essentially. Yeah, without a doubt. And and I think that once we make people realize when we listen intently and make people realize that what they're telling us is benefiting us, that we're taking something out of it, you give people permission to be more confident in doing so. And I think from our own perspective and and leaders out there, I think that we hesitate to tell our stories because we think they're not as important or impressive as other people's. But the story is the basic unit of human understanding. And we're never going to understand ourselves or each other if we don't tell our stories. And so I think that One of the things I try to tell my students, younger people, because they often feel their stories aren't important yet, is that we have to let go of this idea, this thing that was ingrained in us that says, your job is to impress other people, which means your goal should be to make people say, oh, wow, I didn't know that when they hear you speak. Hmm. But one of the much bigger gifts that you can give people is not to make them say, oh, wow, I didn't know that when you speak. It's to make them say, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one. Right. I thought I was the only one who was afraid of that or jealous of that or hurt by that. There's a real freedom that comes when you see somebody else say exactly what you're facing. And as we share our stories, particularly the parts of which we're ashamed because we think they'll make us look weak or unemployable or an embarrassment, what you're actually doing is you're giving people the opportunity to say, oh, wow, I thought I was the only one. That's a really powerful thing. Everybody should share their stories because there's some piece in there, not because it's not, they're not impressive enough, but because what it does is it actually liberates people to say, me too. That is a really, really powerful thing to do. Gotcha. So meet my buddy, Drew Dudley. He is the guy you want to get stuck on the plane with sitting next to. <laughs> right? Maybe, yeah, I, I guess so. Or the one you don't want to get stuck to on the plane because you just want to watch a movie. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. But no, but it's interesting. You're, you're talking about the power of storytelling. That's why I love hearing people's stories. And this story is about gathering other people's stories. So it's like story inception. I like it. <laughs> and I was recently speaking with this brilliant individual who's a great writer but didn't speak regularly. And uh, I sort of laid out a concept to her when we were having coffee. And she said, oh, my God, that's so perfect for what my speech is supposed to be about. I wish that I could use it. And it was at that moment where I realized, well, why not? If you get on stage and say, I was talking to my friend Drew and he said this, it was sort of an eye opener that that's entirely what a lot of my speaking is, is that I gather these insights from other people and I go on stage because I'm the one who has the broader audience to share them and you attribute them. But I was saying, if you want to talk about You're sitting here trying to come up with all of your brilliant ideas around this theme. Why don't you think about this? Think about the stories you've been told and the people who have blown you away with their insights, the type of things that have made your life better. Then go on stage and tell those stories. Those people aren't speaking. Those individuals are out there leading in the world and they don't get the chance to stand on a stage in front of other people or maybe they have no interest in doing it. So one of the things when you're trying to put together a speech, I think people sit back and they're like, 
oh my gosh, what can I tell? What's my story? What's my expertise? Well, instead, sit back and think to yourself, who has absolutely blown away me away with their stories? What is the most useful things I've ever been taught by somebody else? And you can make your entire presentation these stories that come from other people. Don't steal them and act like they're yours. But say, I want to tell the story about my friend Ryan. My friend Ryan has taught me so much. Essentially, it's a curate. You're curating the content from other people who have that amazing content, and you're literally just shining a light on that, and bringing it out, and you have the ability to have a halo with that because you've chosen that as a, an amazing piece and story. But again, it takes this pressure off to have this completely original idea when some of the best ideas is the water that we all know about. We just don't have the attention to understand what's in front of us. Yeah, it's just a great way of taking the pressure off to think, okay, it's my job to create all of this amazing content. No, it's your job to be useful. And if that means <laughs> if that means that what you do is you sit back and say, I'm going to do 20 minutes and it's going to be three six-minute stories about moments in my life, teachers in my life, leaders in my life who changed me and shared these ideas, insights, stories that blew me away, that's a great speech. Just don't steal other people's stuff uh, especially if it's other speakers, but straight up say, here are three of the best lessons I've ever been learned. You don't have to cook it up. Your job is to be useful to the people in the audience. And if that's by passing on three of the things that have been most useful to you, the bonus is you can also tell the story of how you learned it. That is a much more interesting way of learning than a lecture. I love it. Well, we're definitely into the section here where we're talking about tips for speaking. And I think that is an amazing first tip to take the pressure off utilize stories of people who have blown you away and who, who have impacted you from an advice standpoint, incorporate those in storytelling, giving them credit takes the pressure off of you. And the bonus is telling the story of how you got the story. Yeah. And sometimes <laughs> it's not even advice that they've given you. It is simply recognizing that how they live has impressed you. People really mm -hmm. love those stories. And, and when you're on stage, I think that one of the key pieces as well is it, it, talking about sharing other people's ideas is that at least from my perspective, while you're on stage, any story you tell, you should not be the main character in it. Like it's your story. It has to be your story. But in my stories, if you, for instance, if you read the book, when I tell the story of that little girl, I'm in, I'm a character in that story. But the little girl who said to me, you know, don't all books have stories? She asked me and I said, no, some just have knowledge. And she said to me, well, aren't all stories knowledge? And I thought to myself, I've never thought of it that way. I, I guess they are. And she told me that she used to run every day to remind herself that she was free. Anytime that she felt she was in a room that wasn't big enough for her spirit, she said, I run to remind myself that I'm free. And I, I was feeling really down. And I said to her, you know what? I think I'm the same way. I think that I've been spending a lot of time in rooms that aren't big enough for my spirit. And I think that that's making me feel sad. And I appreciate you sharing this. And she looked at me and hopped down off of the, the, the chair and looked at me and said, you know, Drew, I don't mean to be rude, but I don't think that anyone whose spirit is too big for the room they're in would ever read a book without a good story. And I started to realize, <laughs> like, it was just this, like, sort of straight up, oh, you think you're cool, do you? But what you're doing doesn't indicate that's the case that she's the main character in that story. Right. When I talked to the two guys who stormed the beach at Normandy and I love telling the story of what they taught me, they're the main characters in that story. Any story that you tell them, you should not be the main character and the goal should not be about you. It's even really shouldn't even be about the people in the story. It should be about the story that the audience is connected to in their own life because of your story. So when I tell a story about a seven-year-old girl who schooled me, she's the main character. But what I think is really important as well is that I want the audience thinking about that moment in their life where they learned something from a kid. That to me, what you're doing is you're connecting to an experience that they have also had. And that ultimately means when you're storytelling on stage, you're not the main character. And while it's your story, it has to be about the audience. And you, I think you have to be really deliberate about, okay, how is this story going to connect to the people in the audience? And you shouldn't tell stories that won't trigger something in them. That, I think, is a really cool thing to bear in mind. It's an interesting look underneath the table when it comes to storytelling, because how many times have you been told to use stories in your speeches? But you're saying you've got to be 
positioning those stories in a way that resonates with the audience so that the story is something they can relate to. It's not you. It's not the main character. It's a takeaway where they have had something similar in their life, which probably makes them more apt to actually listening and creating insight and taking from that conversation that you're describing what you really want to tell them. Yeah. And I mean, make sure that you're telling the difference or you're paying attention to the difference between whether you're telling a story or an anecdote. An anecdote is something that happened. All right. A story is something that teaches things. All right. An anecdote is I was out one day and I I turned around and ran into Emma Stone and dropped a bunch of champagne on her. Don't ask why I picked that particular anecdote. It just <laughs> happened to a friend of mine. Oy. But ultimately, a story is there's a character, there's a conflict, there's a resolution, there's a lesson, right? So the story of, hey, something cool happened, I ran into a famous person and embarrassed myself. Okay, cool. Nice anecdote. What do I as a listener learn from that? Okay, maybe I've got a similar moment, but there's no point to it really. I tell a story about a little girl who shared with me a perspective on life that we lose as we get older, a reminder that we are always in control of deciding how we feel about ourselves and our lives. And she challenged me and it made me realize something different. Are you telling an anecdote, which is just something that happened to you, or are you telling a story, which is a relatable piece where there's a conflict and a tension that teaches something that has to be overcome and that ultimately there's a resolution and a moral to it. Too many people go up and they just tell anecdotes and ultimately what you need to be asking yourself is, is it an anecdote or is it a story? Don't tell anecdotes in your speeches, tell stories. I mean, you might want to tell an anecdote off the top. Hey, you know, I was, I guess I, I should qualify this as I go. And this is cool podcast because and I apologize that I think out loud as I go, I guess really the only place for an anecdote in your presentation, maybe off the top, if it's something that relates to the organization or makes you feel a little bit connected. You know, one night I was at a, a speech and the night before someone accidentally knocked on my door in the middle of the night and felt so terrible that when I woke up in the morning, there was a little chocolate from the vending machine. And I told that as an anecdote off the top just to say, hey, look how great this audience is. Somebody knocked on my door last night at three and I know you're out there because there you get the laugh off the top, right? <laughs> uh, but then they left chocolate, which really ties into exactly what I want to talk about, blah, blah, blah. So you, you want to maybe – I like how I just took what I do for a living and summed it up with blah, 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 blah. But <laughs> ultimately, that might be the place for an anecdote. But, but pay attention to that when you're on stage. Stay clear of the anecdotes. Tell stories. Okay. I dig it. Do you know Park Howell? He's got a company, The Business of Story, just such a great guy. You guys will have tons of fun telling, swapping stories, and I'm sure that that there'd be a nice connection. He's got a podcast too, The Business of Story, and he would just eat this oh, cool. up. Even the thinking through what you're thinking, because that's a nice behind the scenes. I like it. Now, as a leader, and one thing that you mentioned was that not everybody can be a CEO, but I started thinking, well, what about a DEO? or a DFO, or a DTO, or a DIO, or a DCO. <laughs> I replaced the first letter with a daily. Uh -huh. What about a daily executive officer, a daily financial officer, a daily technical officer, a daily information officer, and a daily community sort of engagement officer? I'm so stealing this. Yeah, you can steal it. Although in leadership, here's the thing. You never steal any ideas. You benchmark a best practice. <laughs> there you go. So I'm going to benchmark those practices. Yeah, that sums completely up what, what I talk about is the idea that if we evaluate leadership on a daily basis, it's all that matters. And a big part of it came from the fact that I am a recovering alcoholic. And one of the things you learn in recovery is that if you never want to drink for the rest of your life, you have to choose not to have a drink today and then treat every single day of the rest of your life as if it is the first day of your recovery. Hmm. Because day ones have an inherent commitment, humility, and forgiveness to them. So if you screw up on day one, which we always do, most of us, when we're doing something for the first time, you don't then say, okay, this isn't worth doing, I'm quitting. What you do is you forgive yourself and you recommit and the next day is another first day. That is inherent in first days. But if you've been doing the same thing for 25 years and you've been doing it well, none of those days in the past 25 years matter when what is non-negotiable today is not having a drink again. Hmm. And it doesn't matter how many days in a row. And, and it, someone said this at the first meeting I was ever at when someone expressed, wow, 38 years sober. And he looked right at him and said, 
look, son, I have just as much time in today as you do. Hmm. This idea of breaking down big challenges in our lives and big goals in our lives into the behaviors that have to be non-negotiable every day. And for me, that's how we look at leadership. We all wake up every morning having accomplished the exact same amount of things to earn the title of leader. Nothing. Not a damn thing. That seven-year-old and I woke up having done the exact same amount of leadership behaviors that day. And if you take a look and you say, all I'm going to focus on is whether I engaged in specific non-negotiable leadership behaviors today, and the book is about figuring out what the specific ones for you are because it's different for everyone. But that's where the focus is. Hmm. And that means everybody wakes up with the same opportunity and obligation to engage in leadership behaviors each day. That is something I think, and I like the idea of, of daily officers, that you're in charge of these today. Right. And I mean, the CEO, like the chief financial officer, you, you have a lot of responsibility. There is a lot of pressure. But if you're just the daily executive officer and each day you sort of take on that new commitment. So my question about the DEOs when it comes to their speaking and, and you helping these leaders who maybe before didn't see themselves as leaders, how do you get them to take the jump, the daily jump to be able to share their stories, make their impact and share their leadership with the world? Because granted, a CEO might be more proficient because he's had 25 years of practice. But when you're talking to a seven-year-old DEO, what do you say to her or him to get them up on the stage, flexing their talk muscles. <laughs> well, I, I think that recognizing that all the world's a stage yes. and seizing the opportunity to share your stories one-on-one. -on -one. Because look, if you're a speaker just starting out, one of the tough things to do is facing this audience of eyes, right? It's intimidating. So one of the things that I recommend to, to speakers is talk to three people during your first speech. Pick someone on the left, pick someone in the middle, and pick someone on the right. Someone who is smiling, someone who just has that vibe to them that they like you. And sometimes you'll switch, like you'll start looking for one person on the left and it won't work, but you'll find eventually that person that when you lock eyes with them, you feel like you're sort of together on this, right? You're in this together. Pick one on the left, pick one in the middle, pick one in the right. Yeah. Maybe it takes you five minutes to find the one in each section. And then slowly rotate from left to middle to right, making eye contact with exactly that person. Now, everybody in the vicinity is going to feel like you're making eye contact with them. But then you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation where you're trying to share something that you feel is important. And if you're on stage and you don't feel it's important, get off the damn stage. But <laughs> that's how I start. And I think that what I let people know is that you start practicing that by trying to share your stories one-on-one. -on -one. For me, you know, to switch from the speaking to what's in the book is what I try to do is I say, take the things you want to stand for every day, figure out what they are, and then tie them to questions that you have to ask every day. The way I approach the world is that every day is day one, which means I've got commitment, humility, and forgiveness for myself. I have these non-negotiable behaviors I've created. So every day is day one. And I need to earn every next day on this planet. At the end of every day, you have to earn and prove that you deserve another day. And what you do is you do it by passing a test. The bonus is that you are given the test, the questions to the test in the morning. You know what you're going to be asked at the end of the day. And each one of those questions is tied to your core values. So at the end of the day, I have six questions tied to six core values. I want to live every day. And I have to get three of those six questions answered by the end of the day where I go to bed. And they are, what have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? What have I done today to make it more likely someone would learn something? What did I do today that might not work, but I tried it anyway? What did I do to move someone else closer to a goal today? When did I elevate instead of escalate? And what did I do today to be good to myself? I know in the morning that to earn another day on this planet, I need to get three out of those six questions answered. And if I answer those questions, I've lived those values. And you can help people say, what do you want to stand for? They can be five. We've done this with five, six, seven-year-olds. Okay, what kind of person do you want to be? What, what kind of words do you want people to use to, to say that you stand for? And they say, kindness. Okay, cool. Let's come up with a question that if you answer it today, you'll have shown kindness. So, oh, how did I make someone smile today? Great. Make sure that sometime today you find an answer to that question. 
Now, in the book, I talk about the psychological research that shows how powerful a question like that can be, how not answering that question causes psychic discomfort, et cetera. But for a seven-year-old, it doesn't matter. They know how to answer questions all day long. They, they look for them all day long. They look for answers all day long. So that's how we get people doing it. Instead of just saying, hey, let's go and do something, what you do is you embed questions into your life. And because unanswered questions cause psychic discomfort, people will look for the opportunity to answer those questions. And when you answer the questions, you've actually turned around and lived these things that are important to you. And what I talk about is when you've lived those things in the process impacting others positively, that is leadership. And we could do it all day. But don't just accidentally live your values. Plan to live your values. That's what separates good leaders from great ones. Decide to be the DEO of the day. Exactly. <laughs> but also know what a DEO has to accomplish. What is your job description? Right. If you're a DEO, yeah. my DEO says, okay, you better live impact, growth, empowerment, courage, class, and self-respect today. That's the job of today's DEO. That's the key. And if you want to be a DCO, a daily communications officer, and you want to up your speaking game, look at the values and core things you want to be known when it comes to the qualities of a speaker. Are you going to be inspirational? Are you going to be educational? Then formulate questions around those. Then in your daily outreach or your daily networking or the daily creation of your content, you can take that your test, your aptitude test of your DM or DC or DEO-ness based on those core values, reverse engineering questions that lead you on a daily task of earning your right for another day. That's some good stuff. You know what's interesting, man? I never thought about this, but I need to cook up the questions that you should pose for every section of your presentation, of your speech. Because you just made me realize that there are certain questions that need to be answered for every presentation as well. Like, how is this section useful? How did this connect the audience to a story in their own life? Like going through and asking yourself these specific questions, I think is really important. So I'm, once I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to sit down and see if I can be useful that way. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting when you say, ask yourself, you know, am I going to be inspirational? For what it's worth, I would discourage anyone from going on stage trying to be inspirational. <laughs> right. Okay. I think it's a way to crash and burn. Okay. Uh, for me, one of the questions that never go on stage trying to be motivational or inspirational. Always try to go on stage to be useful because useful, compelling ideas are inherently motivating. If you go on stage and you give people insight, processes, tips, tricks, whatever you do that is useful to them, that will make their lives, relationships, or work better, that is inherently motivating. If you try to go up and say, I'm going to try to connect with them and make them feel this emotion, you can figure out how to be useful through doing that or use that as a tool to be useful. But your number one goal while you're on stage has to always be, how am I useful? Every section of your speech, you have to be able to look at and say, how is this useful? One of the tips I was once given is, as you put together pieces of your presentation, and I suggest never write a whole presentation. Put it together in pieces, right? It's like comedic bits. Five to seven minutes are little sections that you do. But at each point in each of those sections that you then put together, you know, eight to 12 of them to create your 60-minute presentation, a friend of mine once said, I want you to imagine me for the rest of your career sitting in the front row of every single speech that you have ever given. And every time that you make a point... I want you to imagine that I scream through cupped hands at you, why do I care? Mm -hmm. And I think that one thing that we miss as speakers sometimes, and I still remember that, and I catch myself after a speech if I watch the video saying, ah, I just talked for two and a half minutes and at no point answered them that question, why do I care? That's really important. And being motivating and inspirational should never be your goal on stage. Your goal on stage always has to be how am I useful? And that changed entirely the way that I construct speeches. Yeah. And I'd love to see these questions that come up because it's a great point. People might want to be inspirational, but what are the true questions that the audience will be asking themselves to determine whether or not what you say is inspiring? And so, you know, it's almost like we ask those questions too late as a feedback form, but you could create and invent a pre-back form, which is a pre-feedback for you as a speaker to know the answers to the questions that your audience is going to want before you start talking. 
Yeah, that was a mouthful. I, yeah, <laughs> I think too is that imagine you're watching your speech on television. This is another trick that I use. Imagine you're watching your speech on television like it was a sports cast, like public speaking was a competition. And it's not, by the way, business-wise. There's lots of gigs out there. We're not competing with other speakers. But imagine like every sporting event has a play-by-play announcer and a color commentator, and they talk. So one of the things I do as I'm doing my presentation is I try to think how a cynical person who immediately went into that speech being like, I'm not going to like this person, how they would be thinking, like what kind of commentary they'd have in their head, like at a sporting event. Well, Jim, that's a really good point that he made, but he completely ignored this one. So (laughs) as I go through it, I think, okay, if this was a cynical person, like if this was someone on Twitter, because, you know, Twitter and social media is awful, what kind of things would they be saying to try to poke holes or diminish what I was saying? Well, Jim, that completely ignores this particular point. There he goes with another antidote. I wish he would just stick with the story and stop making himself the first person. <laughs> exactly. And, and so do that with your speech. It's hard and it's it makes people scared because yeah. that's what we're afraid of on stage, that people are doing that. But lean into it because I often have changed my presentation because if someone's thinking, yeah, but what about? And then you immediately go right into that. They're like, oh, wow, this guy's on top of it. Yeah, but what about? you know, hey, Drew, are you saying that everyone can be a leader? Because come on. No, because then what I do is I created, how do I articulate how I'm not saying that? You know, I do a speech on the list that drives people's lives. And when I talk to students, which I don't get to do enough anymore, someone said to me, you know, I thought, okay, they're going to say, Drew's up there saying your grades aren't important, which led to me saying or creating the most tweeted and repeated quote that I've ever spoken, which is, you should work incredibly hard to make your grades extraordinary. And then you should work twice as hard to make them the least impressive thing about you. Mm. That was created by trying to recognize what problem people would have with what I was saying. It's hard because it does intimidate you knowing that people are going to be out there judging you, but don't ignore it, lean into it and make your presentation stronger as a result. That's great. Literally looking at yourself through the lens of a cynical sportscaster, I think that's a great piece of advice. So let's step into the zone of how you have found success spreading your message. You know, it's led you to a book. It's led you to a very successful TEDx talk, which is promoted on the TED channel. I mean, you're, you've got some traction here. What are some of the things you wish on the bedside as someone who is like, okay, I'm going to go out there and start my speaking career. I'm leaving the house and you're on the bedside and you're like, all right, before you go, I want to tell you these certain things. What would those things be? <laughs> this is where I'm not as useful as I'd like to be because okay. I am an incredibly privileged guy. One, I was born Canadian and a straight white dude. So there's right there. I won the lottery, but in terms <laughs> right. of, I also won the speaking lottery in a number of ways in that I didn't plan to be a speaker. A lot of the things, I started speaking as part of workshops to teach young volunteers as part of a charity that I was the national chair of. And it just so happened that that meant that I got to speak in front of 65 school representatives every year at a national conference, which led to many people asking me to do it, which led me to running a leadership program at the University of Toronto, which meant I was doing you know, 50 to 60 hours in front of a classroom regularly. And so that leads to more speaking engagement. So I had the chance to hone my craft hours and hours and hours each week, which not everybody has the opportunity to do because not everyone has that kind of stage. As well, I did a TEDx talk three months after I left my job to become a full-time speaker that went viral. So people are like, how, man, how do you get to do 100 gigs a year? I'm like, get a TED talk that goes viral. That's terrible business (laughs) advice. Like, how do you do that, right? You know, have somebody in the audience that TED Talk who runs, a, you know, a major speaking bureau so that bang, I walked out of the gate with uh, speaker bureau representation three weeks after I decided to become a full time speaker. So it's hard and, and I don't want to be useless to people, but I do recognize that a lot of the stuff that people work many years in their careers to get to, I managed to have happen right away. Here's some things that I do try to be useful with, however. There is a huge difference between cash flow and income. People pay you late sometimes. So (laughs) that to me is something to always bear in mind. I wish people had reminded me 
of the fact that the speaking business goes in cycles that are unpredictable, but some cycles are predictable, which means you're probably not going to make a whole lot of money in December and January of every year. So make sure you're putting some money aside from those big fat months, you know, the uh, March, April, May's, beginning of June's of the year and for, you know, mid-September till the end of November. Don't forget that you're really only working eight months of a year because of holidays, two months of the summer and two months over December, January. You're not going to get on stages. So bear in mind that difference right there. I think that any time spent on a personal brand or social media presence before you are absolutely dynamite on stage is wasted time and money. And what I mean by that is, is that I meet a lot of people who say, oh, I'd like to be a speaker. You know, how do I get myself known? How do I create my brand? Here's where your brand comes from in my mind. If you are given an hour out of people's lives, do you lay them flat? Do you have them walk out of the room saying, my God, my time was well spent there? Especially if you're not famous, you have the opportunity if you're not famous to absolutely surprise people with how much you impact them. And if you don't do that, if when you are given an hour out of people's lives, you don't absolutely blow them away, then you shouldn't be putting your time and money into raising brand awareness or getting a social media following. Don't. All of your time should be going into getting in front of people and making sure that your hour on stage absolutely lays them flat. How do you become successful as a speaker? Move people and educate people and be useful to people while you're on stage. That has to be your primary, most important factor in your business. Anything you do that takes away from you being amazing on stage, that takes your time away from that early on in your career is wasted time. You should not be promoting yourself until you know that you've got an hour on stage that absolutely lays people flat or half an hour, whatever the case may be. That is something I really would encourage people to do is that they pull their attention off of their craft and get it wrapped up in the business side of things and the branding side of things because it's sexy and there's books written on it and you think that's part of it. As a speaker, if you are amazing as a speaker, you are not going to have to worry about marketing. You really aren't. Now, your marketing will make you more successful, but ultimately, most of the business that I've seen in this world comes from word of mouth. Somebody in this audience is going to tell somebody who's booking an event somewhere else. Bear that in mind. I also think, um, sorry, I'm just going off here off the top of my head as opposed to waiting for your questions. But No, this is just stream of content. Just let it flow like the, you know, some sort of an analogy of something in Canada. Like, I know everything's frozen there, so stuff doesn't flow very well. Oh, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, but never mind. If you slip on the ice, you're not paying for it. Um, <laughs> ultimately, something else to bear in mind is that think about who your audience is and what you're selling. I love the work that I do. And it, yes, I think it empowers people. And when I get on stage, I'm about one-on-one who's in the audience. But you don't get on stage one-on-one. You are allowed on stage by gatekeepers. Usually the decision to put you in front of any group of people is made by a very small group of people, sometimes one person. So think about who you're trying to serve. I ask people, I'd like to be a speaker. I'm like, okay, well, what is it that you want to say? Well, I think I want to, no, you can't think about it. You have to know. It has to be something that you just have to say. And it has to be one thing. Like you need your message. Like I want to speak about this and this and this. You need to speak about one thing. I talk about living leadership daily tied to core values. That's what I talk about. And when I started my career, it was like, oh, you want something on communication? Oh, you want something on leadership styles? I can create that. Ultimately, no, you need to say, this is what I'm an expert on. And if you want this, then you hire me. And if you don't, you shouldn't hire me because that's the only way that you really get good at what you're doing. But I think that part of it is when someone says to me, I want to talk to entrepreneurs or young university graduates. There's not a whole lot of places where those people are grouped together. Does that, if that makes any sense. Like entrepreneurs are, you know, relatively individualized groups of people. There's not a whole lot of groups of 200, 300, 400 entrepreneurs that come together. And there aren't a whole lot of gatekeepers that 
have access to those. So when you're thinking about what your expertise is, you have to then say, how would I sell this to an organization? How can I say to a gatekeeper whose reputation is on the line, who has to answer to a boss, if you hire me as a speaker and you give me an hour with your people, what are those people going to be able to do differently at the end of this presentation? What are their new skills going to be? What new processes are they going to be able to use? How are they going to be better as a result of you giving that me an hour out of their lives? And I know that we want to be motivational, inspiring, and we want to move people. That's why we want to be speakers. But in order to get that opportunity to move an individual, you have to sell a product to a gatekeeper. And so that means, okay, Drew, I talk about you know personal leadership values. Why on earth should I give my people an hour with you? All right, because research shows that individual value clarity is tied to employee engagement, happiness, pride, and productivity. So that if I teach people how to identify their core values and live them every day, the research shows that people who do that make better employees. So one of the untapped resources in your organization is you probably have not put into place a process that allows people to identify their personal values and live them through your work. People are going to walk out of that room with a step-by-step process on how to do just that. That's going to benefit you as an organization. Whatever it is you teach, mindfulness, sales, whatever the case may be, you need to be able to identify an audience that has gatekeepers because yeah, you want to speak to young graduates or yes, you want to speak to entrepreneurs. The problem is there's no market for that. Those people aren't together. Those people don't have audiences of 500 that gather regularly all around the world. You have to be able to say, here is what I am selling that is going to benefit the organizations of these people. Because most companies aren't going to hire you to teach their people how to be entrepreneurs. They will, however, hire you to teach them how the entrepreneurial mindset can be applied in an organizational setting. That's different. So I think that's really important is to bear in mind that this is a business where what you have to do is sell what you're providing, your ideas, your skills to one or two or three people at a time whose reputation is on the line and who need to be able to justify to their boss that we gave this person an hour so that our people will be better at X, Y, and Z. And if you can't articulate specifically what that audience will be better at when you're done, it's going to be really hard to make a speaking business. Wow. And now you came into this last section saying you were lucky and didn't have much value to drive, but I'm pretty sure you are lying because that's all very solid information, such as hyper-focus on one topic, hyper-focus on the gatekeeper and the ability to sell what you're doing as a product to answer these questions that your audience will have that the organization wants to have certain outcomes with. So Drew, you are full of stuff. I feel like we've been sitting on a train this entire time, yapping it up, and I didn't realize that we're now already almost in San Diego on the Surfliner because we've been having so much fun. (laughs) I I did forget one thing, if that's okay. Just bear this in mind, folks, if you're listening. If you want people to pay attention to what you're saying, talk about things that make them angry or make them scared. People will, or sex, people will always pay attention to to three things. Things that make them angry, things that make them scared, or sex. So let's throw sex out. Um, Now, that may sound like, oh, why would you, you don't want people to be angry or scared. Well, I didn't say make them angry or scared. I said, talk about things that make them angry or scared. And there's two reasons to do that. One, to make them more angry and more scared, which is what politicians do. Or to make them less angry and less scared. And that's what leaders do. So, but if you are thinking, standing up there on a stage, here is my topic. One of the first questions you ask is, what are they afraid of? What makes this audience scared? Because if you can make clear that you're on stage to address that fear and to alleviate that fear, and if you can convince them that listening to you is going to do that, you've got them. So very clearly think about in your, as you put together your speech, what is the audience afraid of and how can I fix this? That lollipop story It was because the audience was afraid to call themselves leaders because they thought it would make them arrogant. So I wanted to do a talk on how they didn't need to be afraid of that. So think about that. That's just one thing I I always try to share and I'd forgotten to do so. What is the audience afraid of? What is the audience angry at? And if you can address that, you're going to catch their attention. 
But then your job is to make sure that you find a way to alleviate those two things. So always bear that in mind because that really captures people's attention. If you go on stage and talk about stuff that makes them mad or frightened and you address that head on in a useful way, then you're going to have a successful career as a speaker. And it's not something you can just ask one time in the world. It's something that you need to do every single day because this is day one. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> hey, so Drew, if somebody who's going to catch him, we'll have a bunch of stuff in the show notes and all these links in your and your TED talk and all that stuff. But if you were going to point somebody in a certain direction, just to one place, where would you like to send them? Uh, DrewDudley.com is the ideal spot to come and find out anything that you need to know about uh, the book about the online process that you can go through to identify your values or what it's like to speak. And, and hey, feel free to reach out and uh, through any social media channels, I answer every email I get. Sometimes it takes a while, but I love talking about speaking because I learned something and, and I've learned something from you today just by chatting about some of these ideas. So thank you. Absolutely. And I will attest to that. I literally reached out to you on Twitter and here we are. So I, I think that though Twitter can be an evil place with angry trolls, it's also a great place of connectivity and meeting new people. So that's what I enjoy about it. Well, Drew, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully we'll share the stage sometime. And uh, I love the work that you're doing because the more leaders we can inspire who don't know that their leaders will be better leaders to lead a better everyone. Amazing, my friend. Thanks so much for the opportunity. All right, great. And anybody listening, this is just a taste. We have tons of other podcasts with amazing speakers from around the world who you're going to get to know them through their stories. You're going to get to know their advice from their real world experience, and you're going to get their insights on how they made it to where they are. So you can get an honest look at what it's going to take to emulate that type of success. Drew, you are a great example of that. Whether you're lucky or not, you are fighting for it every single day because it all starts with today and that is day one. So earn your right, everybody, to get up tomorrow and answer those difficult questions. Make sure it's all in line with your values and respect the seven-year-olds. <laughs> all right, Drew, we'll see you later, buddy. Take care. Thanks so much, my friend. 